Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe through quasars. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. And I'm Cormac Lerkin. I'm a PhD student at the University of Heidelberg and Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics, and I study anything and everything to do with massive stars. You're listening to episode 82. So the universe thinks it can dance. So I actually went to a dance class last week, about a week ago, completely oh. unrelated to titling this episode. It was a hip hop dance class. I was so out of my element. I was like, I should really stick to physics. What's going on here? They also record you during the <laughs> dance class. They record you after you've learned the dance. It was really embarrassing. But it did give me some empathy for dancers. I don't know. It made me realize that dancing is way more difficult than I could ever imagine, and I will probably never be good at it. Okay, we should definitely dance at some point. Fun fact, I was a professional dancer for quite a while. Oh my gosh. I did ballet. I taught ballet as well, and hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> so we have... Me, who's taken like one dance class, maybe did some ballet classes growing up. Kirsten's a professional dancer. Cormac, where are you on the dancing scale? The only comparable experience I can give is when I first moved to Heidelberg. So bouldering is a really big deal here. And a lot of people from one of my groups go there. So I went with my supervisor and he's a very accomplished climber. And he was trying to give me some tips. And he was like, oh, stick your butt in more. And like, I can't, I can't. He's like, why? My belly's in the way. You know, like it was really just embarrassing <laughs> having a man almost twice my age scurry up this wall. And I'm there clinging for dear life, wondering if I'll ever see my mother again. So yeah, I, I too can empathize with the, these things are difficult and should be left to people who are good at them. Maybe we should have made this episode about climbing. Why is everyone in physics into climbing? Everyone climbs in this field. You are so right. <laughs> it needs to be like addressed in some formal way. <laughs> okay, so today we have a slightly different episode in that one out of two of our astrobytes is actually a physics education bite, which is the first time we've done something like this, but awesome and really exciting. And maybe we'll do this more often in future episodes. Since the science astrobite today, we'll be talking all about black holes. Can you explain the difference between an active galactic nuclei, or oftentimes called an AGN, a black hole, and a quasar? Yeah, so this is actually a pretty fun question. So an active galactic nuclei, or AGN, a black hole, and quasar, they all have a black hole. So obviously a black hole has a black hole, right? So <laughs> for black holes... There are a variety of different sizes, and they can be anywhere in the galaxy. So you've got the stellar mass black holes that have an initial mass somewhere above 20 solar masses. And then you have these supermassive black holes that typically are at the center of galaxies, and they're 4 million to 40 billion times the mass of the sun. And 
like I said, these guys live at the center of galaxies. And then you've got the elusive intermediate mass black holes that live somewhere in the middle between these two masses. And so for the black holes that live at the center of galaxies that are supermassive, they're called AGN, or active galactic nuclei, and they're pretty luminous because they're accreting a lot of material, so this causes a lot of radiation to be emitted. And then quasars are just a subclass of AGN that are extremely luminous. And one of the reasons why we think that they're super luminous is because we think that their jets are basically pointed towards us, so where we can see it the best. So that's why they seem to be brightest to us. Amazing. This reminds me of the Russian stacking dolls. I don't know why that analogy came to my <laughs> mind. The black hole is like the biggest one. Then there's the AGN. Then there's the quasar. That analogy works for a lot of naming conventions in astronomy, though. There's so much overlap and so much of one thing being defined more broadly, but then there's a bunch of more specific things within that category. Anyway, thanks so much, Kirsten. Of course. So more on confusing black hole stuff, or hopefully not as confusing after this episode. We've talked a lot about different ways of studying black holes in previous episodes, particularly in observing them indirectly. And today we'll actually learn about one way we can indirectly observe the sun in Cormac's astrobite, which is exciting. But can you summarize some of the ways in which we study black holes indirectly observationally? Sure. So as I'm sure we all remember, a black hole is called black because not even light can escape from it. And so we can't really study them directly, directly. But as you allude to, there are many ways we can study them indirectly. So over the past few episodes, we've talked a lot about gravitational wave experiments like LIGO and Virgo. And these show us mergers of stellar mass black holes as they create ripples in space-time that pass through the detectors. And this allows us to make inferences about the properties of the black holes prior to the merger, like the masses and spin. Now, there's other ways of doing it too. So black holes have gravitational pull, and this can be exploited. For example, if we measure stars near a black hole, such as at the centre of the galaxy, Sagittarius A star, we can measure the positions of those stars very precisely as they orbit the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy, with, for example, the gravity instrument at ESO. And this gives information about the properties of the supermassive black hole. And in this specific case, it was also a very important test of general relativity in extreme conditions. And this resulted in the Nobel Prize for Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Ghez in 2020. But that's not the only kind of stellar astrometry that we can use for black holes. There's been at least one isolated stellar mass black hole detected from Gaia. Mm. And this is really cool because then you can detect things that would later become black hole mergers in LIGO and Virgo. You can see them before that happens. For example, if you have an O star and a stellar mass black hole in a binary, then you'll just see the star moving in circles as it's orbiting its invisible companion. So the black hole isn't radiating or doing anything other than just sitting there. But because the star is moving around, we can still see it. I think that's really cool. That's super cool. Yeah, I guess maybe my question should have been, we've only once directly observed a black hole by imaging it. Ooh, I, 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 oh, that's a matter of interpretation. Well, technically, they only image the event horizon, not the black hole itself. Right. So I was just going to, mm. that was actually my next thing. That radio astronomy allows us to observe the event horizon of supermassive black holes. For example, the famous image of M87 by the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration and later on Sagittarius A star. So I would count that as indirect because we haven't actually seen the black hole because by definition we can't. But that's, I guess, the closest we'll get to seeing. And I'm doing air quotes on my hands because this is a podcast I've just realized that we're <laughs> kind of seeing the black hole. 
I feel like that counts, though. It's as close to, yeah, it's as close <laughs> to directly as possible, right? I mean, Cormac, you make a good point, but I don't know. Maybe that is more of a black hole observational subtlety that I haven't thought too much about. Sure. I mean, it's, it's the astrophysical equivalent of if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to observe its electromagnetic radiation, then did it really fall, right? That's true. But you can observe the lack of radiation in that region, which is then the black hole. So isn't that directly observing it? Isn't the event horizon part of a black hole? But it's, it's the barrier that nothing can escape from, right? Yeah. You're still not in the black hole yet when you pass the event horizon. You just will never get out of there. I guess it's, it's hard to know. This is this is getting uh, far beyond my level of comfort with black holes. Before I lose the thin veneer of competence that has been staining my career thus far, <laughs> uh, we'll move on to the last thing I want to mention, which is... Something we'll kind of touch on later on in, in the questions, I think, but we can also get emission from accretion disks. And so matter falling into a black hole, it forms a disk. And as this material falls in, various forms of radiation can be emitted, like X-rays and radio waves from, say, X-ray binaries. By studying this, we can also learn about mass and spin of black holes, for example. Nice. So a quick follow-up to that is we talk a lot about accretion disks. So why are they important for observations and just studying black holes in general? Accretion disks are interesting because they are the source of power for AGNs. They are flat, rotating structures of gas and dust that form around massive objects, such as supermassive black holes. And these disks are important for understanding AGNs because they play a crucial role in powering the intense radiation emitted by the AGN jet. The jet power can be provided by the accretion disk or also by the black hole rotation. In AGN, the supermassive black hole accretes matter from the disk, and this disk provides gravitational energy, which is transformed into radiation emission seen from the AGN. Thank you for telling us all about black holes and accretion disks. So I'm going to try and transition into this next question as smoothly as possible by saying, if you imagine the black hole indirectly or directly imaged, as we have not settled the contentious debate here, on the podcast, if you imagine that image, actually a solar eclipse kind of looks similar, right? The light is blocked out from the sun. <laughs> so, <laughs> but obviously very, very different phenomena. How often do solar eclipses occur and why? Yeah, love that transition. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> the number of solar eclipses that we can have in a year ranges somewhere between two and five, with the average being 2.38 eclipses on any given year. And so the majority of the eclipses end up being partial, but you can have total eclipses where you end up having the whole moon blocking out the sun. So when we say solar eclipse, what's happening with the geometry is that you have the earth and then you have the moon, which is blocking out the sun. So that's the order in which these are orbiting. And so an interesting thing is how often a particular spot on Earth is in the path of totality. And on average, for the entire Earth, it's around 375 years, which is why some of us might think that it's pretty rare, although it happens pretty often globally on the Earth. And in the Northern Hemisphere, on average, it's about once every 330 years. And in the Southern Hemisphere, it's only once per 540 years which is pretty cool. And that kind of mostly has to do with how the continents are arranged on Earth. So you're more likely to be on a continent that's going to have a solar eclipse than in the middle of the ocean in the Southern Hemisphere. 
So one additional thing to know about solar eclipses is that they all happen at the new moon. So in that phase of the moon, basically when Mm. it's completely round. So that only happens at two times when the moon passes in front of the Earth's orbit. So the Earth is orbiting around the sun and it can pass in front of the Earth's orbit or behind the Earth's orbit. And those are the two points that you can have these solar eclipses. So yeah, that's just the down and dirty on solar eclipses. I vote for us to take maybe a dancing trip. Like, you know how people go to those dancing competitions, but rather than that, let's go to a solar eclipse viewing. We could call it a sun dance. A sun dance, yeah. And we could make a film about it. Sundance <laughs> Film Festival. Yeah, actually, there's a solar eclipse coming up in the U.S. The next total solar eclipse is actually on April 8th, 2024. And then the next total solar eclipse that can be seen from the main island of the U.S., not including Hawaii, is August 23rd, 2044 in 20 years, guys. So we got to go see this one if you're in the U.S. Maybe there's another one in Europe or Australia if you miss this one. Thanks so much for answering all these questions for us, Kirsten and Cormac. Okay, so on to the astrobites. Our first dancer is Kirsten, literally our first dancer. She was actually a dancer, (laughs) who will tell us whether black holes are good enough dancers to make it into the ballet program at Juilliard. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... This astrobite is called both pirouettes and dosi dos. Why is there a bias in the black hole ballet? And it was written by Cole Meldorf. So what this astrobite is about is it basically takes a look at the strange spin of these black holes that were detected using gravitational waves, and it investigates why they might be spinning so weirdly. And so... Starting off with a little bit of background as your resident retired dancer. So this astrobite has a ton of ballet terms, which are typically in French. And so pas de deux comes up and it means dance of two or it's a duet dance with two people. And pirouette is a turn that is typically done on one leg. So that is your new knowledge of ballet terms. And so here, the dance between the black hole mergers is spin or angular momentum. And so in a binary black hole merger, there are two kinds of angular momentum at play. You can have the orbital angular momentum, which is the angular momentum of the two black holes just spinning around each other. And then the angular momentum of the black hole itself. So it spins around itself kind of like a pirouette spinning around itself. For black holes, the assumption here is that angular momentum is once again conserved. So the resulting combined black hole spin will have three components. So the two spins and the one orbital angular momentum. And because keeping track of these three spins is extremely hard, we astronomers have decided that we will lump them all together and call them by a single number, which we call the effective spin. Now, the effective spin is the weighted average of all three angular momentums, where the weight is actually controlled by the mass of the black hole. 
just to let you know the basically three scenarios that we can have, we can have both of the black holes spinning clockwise. And if they're also orbiting each other clockwise, then they'll have an effective spin near one. If they're both spinning counterclockwise and the orbit is clockwise, then the effective spin will be negative one. And if the black holes are spinning in the opposite direction of each other, the effective spin will be closer to zero, kind of canceling that out. From the gravitational waves, like I said before, they detected this really odd trend with the effective spin. And specifically, they found that as the mass difference between the black holes increases, so if you have a teeny tiny black hole and a extremely massive black hole, the effective spin also increases. So basically this difference causes the effective spin to also increase. And specifically, the black hole mergers with the uneven mass have an effective spin that is always positive, which is extremely weird because even though you would expect the effective spin to be weighted between using the masses of the black hole, you would still expect one of the black holes to be orbiting in such a way that you could also get negative numbers. Yeah, so okay, we have these beautiful black holes dancing in some galaxy. And then you said that it doesn't matter the ratio at all. Basically, if those black holes are different masses, the spin is going to be positive. Is that true? Yes. That's crazy. If they have really big differences in mass, the effective spin will be positive. And they do look at a ratio for this. They look at a mass ratio. It's called Q, but basically as the Q decreases or the similarity between the masses decreases, the effective spin increases. Oh, interesting. Same thing, different way of stating it, yeah. But then what if they're the same mass? Do they say anything about that? Yeah, so if they're the same mass, they basically find what they're expecting to find. Okay. That you can have some that are negative one, some that are zero, some that are positive one. So basically, they fill up the entire space. That makes sense. So one theory about why this could be happening is due to what they call hierarchical mergers. So this is when two black holes merge and then become a new bigger black hole. And then they go ahead and merge again and again and continue to produce even larger black holes. So that's what a hierarchical merger is. And these hierarchical mergers typically happen in really dense regions of a galaxy. And so one of the regions that this could be happening in would be around accretion disk in AGN hmm. because they've got a lot of stuff spiraling around and they also have these things called migration traps where essentially the fluid dynamics of the disk create areas where the black holes will tend to congregate and merge. Planet person, don't they have those for planetary formation disks too? Migration traps or no? Actually, they do. I don't do protoplanetary disks, but they do have these little kind of choke points within the disk. Maybe they're the same thing. I don't know. Have a protoplanetary disk person correct me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so on top of all of this, like Cormac stated earlier, the disk is also spinning. And because the disk is spinning, similar to how 
in our solar system, we have all the orbits kind of preferentially spinning either with the rotation of the disk or against the rotation. You basically have two options. The idea here is that because the disk is spinning, it can basically force these black hole mergers to either be anti-aligned or aligned with the disk. So it's like having a retrograde orbit and a prograde orbit. But either way, it's spinning either counterclockwise or clockwise to the disk, not on a random orientation. And so the authors of this paper wanted to test out this hypothesis and see if potentially these AGN disks could be the explanation for why we see only a positive effective trend for these uneven mass black hole mergers. And so what they ended up doing was they created a simulation and they simulated two separate populations. So 20% of the black holes that they had in the population were hierarchical mergers with aligned or anti-aligned spin to the disk. And then the other 80% of the black holes were isolated binaries sitting outside the disk in the galactic field with no preferential direction of spin. And then what they ended up doing is they gave each black hole a mass based on a power law distribution and picked a number of times that the black hole in the disk will undergo hierarchical mergers from a Poisson distribution. A Poisson distribution basically says the longer time that passes, the more likely something is to occur. And so in doing this, basically you had some of the black hole mergers undergo more merges than others. And what they ended up doing was basically putting all of these inputs into their numerical simulator that also accounted for general relativity, which is extremely important when you start thinking about black holes. And the output was basically a distribution of black hole masses as a function of effective spin for these simulated black hole mergers. So they found that the model qualitatively agrees with what they hypothesized. So this indicates that the spinning environment around the AGN could end up forcing the black hole spins to be either aligned or anti-aligned, causing basically the observed trend that we see between the black hole masses and the effective spin. But how can something be qualitatively similar and also not quantitatively similar in this case? Like if there's qualitatively similar, doesn't that still mean that there's a positive spin associated with the larger difference in mass black hole systems? So what they mean here in terms of qualitatively is that they didn't fit their numerical simulation to any sort of data. So basically what they ended up doing was randomizing these populations, which isn't based on any known configurations. Hmm. So qualitatively, they see the same trend, even though they haven't actually constrained their model specifically to data for a given galaxy. And to be quite honest, I'm not sure how they would do that since black holes are a little bit hard to see. So I think that's what the idea is here. So the way that they kind of counteract this is by trying to choose reasonable values for the parameters 
that they did end up inputting into their model. Does that make sense? Yeah, that helps a lot. Thanks. Okay. However, they did find something kind of interesting, even though the 20% of these hierarchical mergers that they had aligned or anti-aligned, they also found that these black holes didn't have to be aligned or anti-aligned perfectly to the disk spin to actually find this result as well. So the effective spin is always positive for these mergers. They could actually be slightly off. Running the simulation again with the spins being close to being aligned or anti-aligned, basically they found the same result. So it didn't have to be perfect alignment or anti-alignment for them to find this. This is a really promising result because as we know in nature, most things aren't ever perfectly aligned in you know realistic scenarios. So basically this means that their model might be a really good match for what's happening out there in the real universe as opposed to just simulations. Wow, that's really interesting. Although it's a qualitative result, it's almost more remarkable that they started the simulations not from any observations. Yeah. And still found a similar result. That in itself is also really remarkable. And because then if you start it with observations, you're biased by whatever systems you're looking at or your observational bias or something. So hmm, it's really interesting. I think that that's also one of the things that I found really striking about it because I think oftentimes we're, as astronomers, really focused on the data. And I don't know what the field of theoretical black holes actually looks like, but it's kind of cool that you can just follow the physics sometimes and end up finding a result that makes sense, which is what you would hope for, but that doesn't always happen. Follow the physics. Yeah, I can, again, relate that back to following the leader in a dance class, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kirsten. That was a really interesting astrobite. And honestly, kind of feel like the way the author of this astrobite made use of analogies, which definitely inspired partially our episode title and theme this week, is one of the best I've seen in astrobites. Like if you look through the astrobite that we'll post in the show notes, you can see that he literally goes through all the different parts of a ballet as he explains the astrobite, which is pretty impressive and interesting. Very clever. Definitely. Okay, so on to our space sound. And okay, this is a particularly hard space sound, so I am going to give you guys a hint. The hint is that... Should you wait to give us the hint so we oh. can see how hard it is? Okay, I'll give you a hint after you listen. If you just know what it is, miraculously, I just feel like it's really hard. <laughs> but I'm also just, you know, pretty bad at these. So maybe my level of difficulty is not the same as yours. Who knows? Cormac might come through and <laughs> be able to guess it right.
Any guesses before I give the hint? <laughs> I know that this is going to be wrong. So I will probably need your hint. Okay. I would guess something like the CMB or something that I would expect to be staticky, just random, or like a, what is it, like a cosmic web sort of thing? Ooh, I think the staticky thing, you're onto the right track. Cormac, do you have any guesses right away? Again, spoiler alert, this is wrong, but it kind of reminded me of the sound of like a particle detector on a spacecraft. Like you kind of, there was a couple of blips in there. Ooh. Yeah. I see nodding, the kind of nodding that, good get, good try, good try, but no. <laughs> no, my hint was that it's actually something we've talked about in this episode, or something from something we've talked about in this episode. It's not directly that thing. But I don't know if that helps at all. Accretion disc. <laughs> noise from LIGO? Not noise from LIGO. I think accretion disc is more along the lines of what it is. Do you want me to give it away, or you guys want to keep guessing? Accretion disc. I'm stumped. Like a compact disc? CD? <laughs> I have no idea. I need to know. Okay, so this is actually a quasar spectrum. No! It's that staticky? It looks that bad? I was, you know, searching just the weirdest parts of the internet for this sonification. <laughs> And you found astronomy in there? <laughs> Honestly, I think that Paul Francis, who's the professor who actually developed this space sound, I think he's the first person to sonify spectroscopy. So what you're actually hearing is a quasar spectrum, including continuum. So you're hearing all the radiation coming from the quasar and that hissing noise that you hear, you could vaguely, vaguely hear it, is coming from the gas very close to the black hole, actually. So just outside what we were talking about before, which is maybe not part of the black hole, but the event horizon. So where we get those directly imaged black holes, we get a lot of the flux from that region. That is so cool. Yeah, it's based on a bunch of different observations of this particular quasar spectrum. And this is a particularly high signal-to-noise quasar, 400 signal-to-noise quoted in the paper. And it's based on results from this paper by Francis and others from 1991, called A High Signal-to-Noise Ratio Composite Quasar Spectrum. It was published in Astrophysical Journal, and it actually has nearly 1,000 citations at this point, so wow, pretty cool for a quasar spectrum. I feel like quasar spectra aren't as interesting these days, but this one is. So it's based on 700 individual spectra that are averaged from the Large Bright Quasar Survey, and the one that you actually heard Paul on his website says has been extended a bit to longer wavelengths, so more red. He doesn't really elaborate on how he does that, but doing some more digging on websites, including his and Googling around, I found a paper where Paul describes how he does this. So it looks like he submitted it to a physics education journal. I couldn't find the accepted version, so I guess it could have been that it was just never published online, or I'm not sure what happened with that. But basically, this paper is on taking spectroscopy and sonifying it. And he starts the paper out with describing how imaging often takes precedence over spectroscopy in the media. Like, we were so interested in the image of the black hole at the center of 
our galaxy, right? That led to the creation of many, many memes and jokes and everything, but no one talks about the spectra of quasars, which are arguably just as cool. So to solve that problem, Paul looked to turn astronomical spectra into sound in this paper, and that's the sound that you just heard. And he said that it also works really well for emission line objects like quasars or nebulae, but it doesn't work for all objects. The way he does this, I'll explain it just briefly, is he converts from a flux that's dependent on wavelength to a flux that's dependent on frequency. And then he reduces that frequency to the sound of the human ear. So for example, H alpha emission he sets to be at middle C, which is about 260 Hertz. But as an emission line, it's about 656 nanometers, which is a much, much higher frequency. That results to reducing the frequency by about two trillion so that you can actually hear it, the human ear. Wow. And then he randomly assigns phases to all these fluxes. He discreetly samples this waveform that he creates from this frequency. And then, so he uses, actually, Cormac said CD. He uses a sampling rate of a CD, which is about 44,000 hertz. He converts this to a text file with flux values, and then he converts that to a wave file or dot wave file, which is really interesting. And then he also says something about, like, you can put them all in GarageBand and, like, stack them. So he's combining multiples of these. I don't know, I feel like we found a very historically significant sonification paper, and I'm actually moving to the University of Paul Francis next year. He's at the Australian National University, so maybe I can be like, did I explain this right? We should definitely do that. What inspired you to sonify spectra? <laughs> okay, so thanks for listening to my space sound, y'all, and my very extended description, because I got really excited about it. Thanks for bringing us that space sound. Yeah, it was really interesting. It was definitely like a stochastic dance of the night. Speaking of dance, let's get right back into our dance class. Well, actually, we've already had our dance class with our dance teacher, Kirsten. And now we're headed to the disco. We're freestyle dancing with Cormac's Astrobite on a new way to observe <laughs> the sun in outreach activities with a disco ball. So let's take it to the club, guys. <laughs> Yep, so I'll try another segue. Paul Francis is also very well known in the astronomy education community, and we're now going to jump into astronomy education for the first time of this podcast, so I'm told. And this astrobite is called Doing Astronomy with Disco Balls, which wins my vote for most descriptive title of the year. <laughs> and the title of the paper is very similar, which is why every observatory needs a disco ball. The authors are Robert Cumming and collaborators. And it's been submitted to Physics Education, which, again, is a very straightforwardly named journal. <laughs> so, to sum up, we've talked in this episode already about solar eclipses, and I guess this is why we're kind of foreshadowing. Solar eclipse, you shouldn't look at it directly. It's a really bad idea. I don't think we can stress this enough. So, if you want to look at an eclipse, you need to either have some special sunglasses, or you need to look at it indirectly. And a lot of methods for indirect observation use some sort of a pinhole device like a pinhole camera or like a colander, sometimes even through trees, there's different ways of doing it. But you can also do this with a mirror. So a mirror can do the same thing as a pinhole. And a disco ball is just a ball covered in tiny mirrors. And so these people had the very bright idea, the dumb tish, to shine the sun onto a disco ball and then have it project lots of tiny images of the sun in a dark room. Ooh. And so today we're going to hear about how that worked out. I can't believe that you're telling me that I shouldn't stare at the sun all the time. I thought that that was good for my <laughs> eyes. I swore. 
You'd be surprised. Uh, as a TA at a previous place I was at, we had a, a lab with lasers and I told the students that the lasers were blink safe so that, you know, if you shined it in your eye, you would blink quickly enough that it wouldn't cause permanent damage. At which point a student pointed a laser into someone else's eye just to, just to check. It's awful. Enough about how I miss teaching. Yeah, so this, this paper is essentially all about the different things you can do with a disco ball related to the sun and other celestial objects. So the first thing they do is sort of explain the mechanism behind it, which I've already kind of addressed in my synopsis, that you have a small mirror and you can project lots of images. And this gives you some advantages compared to other types of cameras. So normally if you have a pinhole setup, it can be a bit fiddly, that you have to get the focal lengths exact. And it could be, you know, say if you have young kids, it can be hard to get them to pay attention for long enough. But with this, you have lots of images. And so if you're in a dark room, everybody can find their own little image. And as the sun moves across the sky, it'll just hit different mirrors on the disco ball. So you don't have to worry about adjusting it, that at least some of the images projected will be in focus some of the time. So it's, it's very user-friendly for a large group, or even, say, in social distancing, if COVID ever comes back or something like that. So it's, it's a sort of relatively good for a big group where other devices may not be. So in this work, they showed examples of it being used for a partial solar eclipse in Germany last year. And they also managed to see some sunspots on the sun, which was really cool. Wow. And they've suggested that it could be used to observe the transit of Venus in 2117, so if anybody's still around then. How do you get to see the solar eclipse, but also you're in a room? I'm assuming a room with like a window at the top. So in the images I've seen, the setup seems to be like an open door or something like that. Or maybe a part of a window. Basically, the sun does come in somehow, right? And then the rest of the room is pretty dark. Like they would close the windows. And then you have a kind of a, like a screen being the walls that you can project onto. And you would move the disco ball into the path of the light. You wouldn't just leave it on the ceiling. You'd put it somewhere convenient. I was going to say this would be a really cool art exhibition or at like a science museum if they had a huge disco ball and a huge room. Sounds fun. Oh, you should go into art. I think that would be so cool. And speaking of nice ideas, the authors offer a list of suggestions for other experiments that you could do with the disco ball's multiple images from the pinhead mirrors. So one suggestion they give is calculating the speed at which the Earth rotates around its axis because you can measure the movement of the projected images over time. You could also measure the change in intensity over time during the eclipse by taking photographs of the spots. Or one thing which I think is really cool is you could determine how elliptical the Earth's orbit is by comparing seasonal changes in the size of the solar disk. So there's, there's lots of really interesting things you can do with this. Ooh, very cool. I've done SciCom with kids and getting them to pay attention with, like anything that requires precise setups is a terrible idea with anyone under the age of 12. Uh... So for example, once I was helping at our institute in Groningen, where I did my bachelor's, on an observing night, you know, you have the telescope set up, and I don't speak Dutch the best of times. So I'm just basically there as a competent adult to make sure it's pointing at something they want to look at. And then child comes up, looks in and goes, ooh, maybe I'll be a scientist, right? That's, that's, that's the goal. But of course, the child will <laughs> accidentally hit the telescope or grab it. You know, this is normal things for a child to do, but the precise setups and then, oh, I don't see anything. Well, okay, they don't say that. They say it in Dutch. And then I look at a colleague and the colleague will say, oh, they don't see anything. And then I have to look and say, well, yes, because you slapped it. But my Dutch isn't good enough to tell you that. So, you know, so my, the, the, the point of this ramble is that it's nice to have a setup which is tamper-proof and that as long as somebody doesn't hit the disco ball, you'll have something in focus all of the time. That's really nice as a demonstrator 
to have something that isn't so dependent on a fine alignment and you only have one image and then oh it's my turn to look and you know it's nice to show a room full of people pick your spot so that's that's what i really like about this as someone who loves doing psychom that it's good for a large group of low attention spans which is typically what you see in public open days yeah i feel like that long line to look through that one solar telescope is maybe solved with this which is pretty intense like rather than projecting it onto a screen you just everyone has their own mini solar telescopes in a weird way mm. through the little mirrors on the disco ball which is really interesting yeah and depending on the solar activity you can do this all of the time because you can see sunspots if there's lots of them so that, that's one thing to consider that it's not just for eclipses and you can also look at the moon with this, but it has to be really dark in the room. I'm just surprised that you can see sunspots with it. I mean, I guess I've never actually stared at the sun. I joke. But that means it's pretty good resolution. The images are in the astrobite, if anyone's curious to look for themselves. But you can definitely see there's stuff there where there should be sunspots because they compare it to an actual image of the sun at the same time. And you can see there's like a dark blob in the right spot. So it seems legit. That's so cool. So in closing, disco balls are readily available and relatively affordable and they don't really need much preparation and they're good for large and or socially distanced groups. And you can also do some other things with them other than just looking at eclipses. And another thing which I didn't actually mention already is that because they're not really a scientific instrument, that's a way to grab people's attention to make it more relatable to students and the general public at large. The disco balls are, you know, ooh, come see our space disco ball and then you can actually explain we can do space stuff with it, so... I think it's really nice. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you, Cormac, for sharing our first ever physics education astrobite during a episode. Really exciting. Probably do this more in the future. I was going to say, I'm hoping we do this more in the future. Yeah. I mean, we are a physics education adjacent podcast, astronomy education, so we should. And I do education research in my spare time, so I'm happy to dig some stuff out. If there's anything I see, I can maybe point it out. There you go. Maybe you should start saying in your intro. I do massive stars and also... Hi, I'm Cormac Larkin, and I have no free time. Please send caffeine. <laughs> so now it is time for our one-sentence summaries. Kirsten, do you have a one-sentence summary for us? Oh, I do. So my one-sentence summary is black holes with uneven dance partners may always have a positive effective spin because they are dancing on a rotating floor, i.e., an Aegean disc. And what about you, Cormac? So, my one features a trademark Larkin terrible pun. Researchers discover a new way to glam up <laughs> solar eclipse viewing in a safe and fabulous way. Oh, I love the fabulous. <laughs> Loved it. Thank you, guys. So, in Astro Soundbites, we oftentimes make use of analogies to describe difficult scientific concepts. And I think Kirsten did that really well in her presentation of her Astrobite today. So how do analogies help us understand science? And should we be using more analogies in our physics education research and talks? For the most part, I don't think that I've ever heard an analogy that was terrible. So I feel like most of the time they're positive and at worst, they're probably pretty neutral. I mean, sure, you could probably confuse someone that way, but I think if they're well thought out, they can definitely be an extremely useful tool, especially when someone 
is trying to visualize something because I know some people that can think in math, but oftentimes when I'm thinking about something, I have to think about what it's doing and what it would look like. And I think that analogies are a great way when you don't have images to really visualize what's happening. Yeah, that's interesting. I also think maybe we should be tailoring our analogies to the particular group that we're talking to. I mean, a very specific one is if you're talking to a group of artists or you happen to give an outreach talk at a dance school for some random (laughs) reason, people will be more likely to grasp that whole ballet analogy better than if you gave it at a construction company group or like an elementary school even that doesn't have an arts focus. Yeah, we also need to think about how we can tailor the analogies to the group that we're talking about. And maybe that's almost even more important than making sure your analogy is good. Like I had to Google all the terms in your astrobite. I didn't know anything about the different parts of a ballet. (laughs) So I think that can almost make things more confusing unless you know about it. I mean, it's a great analogy if you Google things, but you have to be careful. Just tacking onto that, I think it's also important to think about who you're giving analogies to at like what level. So say for science communication, I think it's fine. Mm. If you're trying to explain something to people who aren't who haven't got a scientific background where a slight misunderstanding on the nuances isn't really important for the big idea. But I've seen cases where analogies can cause problems later on when students say, oh, but in my first year bachelor course, I thought it was this simple. So like, for example, with redshift, it's often explained like Doppler shift as opposed to, say, the expansion of the universe between you and the thing. And so they're kind of confusing those two distinct physical concepts of something moving with the peculiar velocity versus something far away, you know, space expanding in between. And that's something where, like, I've had students struggle to grasp that because they had it in their head that it was like a car going past them. And so I think Mm. if you're teaching, say, people who are doing a physics degree, who are going to end up being professional physicists, you want to be careful about the kinds of analogies you use in case you kind of build heuristics that are hard to unpack later. Whereas, say, in a public talk for a general audience, sure, fine, you know. Legs go in, ballet dancer spins, angular momentum, no problem there, right? So I think we also need to be mindful of, as you say, like the audience, but also that the purpose of the analogy. You bring up a very interesting point. So actually for me one of the analogies like the ice skater analogy for angular momentum when you're learning about Mm. that in like physics one or two that was super helpful for me because I was like oh yes I know that when I spin and I pull my arms in I go a lot faster that was a very click moment but it could just be because I had a background in ballet and in dance in general and so I had done that thing multiple times and I knew that that is true, that that would happen. But I also wonder, tacking on to kind of what you were saying, Cormac, I feel like going through physics education, you're basically lied to at every stage, and then you find out that someone was lying (laughs) to you in the sense of they were trying to make it simpler. So they so they tell you a simplified version of it. And then later you're like, what do you mean? It's supposed to be X thing as opposed to Y thing. I wonder, would it be better just to tell people up front? Because I feel like sometimes we would end up confusing them more than simplifying them. And how often do we just simplify things in general and cause like that reaction that you're talking about with analogies. Mm. So I've seen in in my education, a professor would often tell us like, this is wrong, but useful. And so it's like, they would say, this is a a simplification of what's really going on. 
but again it's enough to be useful and then we're all like oh okay sure and then it's it's not built up in your head as like this absolute truth that came out of a textbook and then suddenly mm. you know a year or two later but wait you lied to me yeah basically right so like say we were doing thermodynamics and statistical physics we were told some of this stuff is useful approximations for situations which you are likely to need this for and then later on if you need something special in a master's project or a phd then okay you get into the nitty-gritty of the weird bit that you happen to be finding interesting but by and large these approximations exist because they're useful even beyond analogies like problem set questions in physics and the examples that are used to describe physics concepts and i think this has been brought up in diversity gender balance papers before but when you focus too much on stereotypically male types of questions or like all about sports games and stuff and less on more things that more women tend to be involved in that can actually cause a divide and make it harder for people to understand so i guess i think it goes back to tailoring to your audience yeah maybe if you've got a diverse group of kids or whatnot and you've got two different sets maybe you use something that you would think would resonate like sports and then maybe you use an analogy with something else so you have these two options that maybe people can latch on to instead of having this one thing diversity of analogies oh there's another thing you can do which i've worked on which is problem-based or project-based learning they're quite similar where students pick what they want to work on themselves and so you have like a broad problem like a sort of area of physics or whatever you want to teach them that they're interested in or that you're interested in them learning and then they can pick their own learning objectives like let's say you're doing waves and optics and some group wants to build a solar telescope and some group wants to do something with lasers you know so you let them kind of pick their, their own things to latch onto. so I've, I've worked in that from an education side and it works really well because the students kind of take ownership of it themselves and so instead of trying to crowbar something in about okay enough of them will find this interesting you can just say okay there's a lab full of equipment. Don't hurt yourselves and have fun. Isn't that very similar to the Montessori school method? Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where you just do what you want. Cormac, you're pro-Montessori. <laughs> we had a Montessori school on my street, but I don't really know what they did in there. They were nice neighbors. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, like, this is the for, say, second year bachelor students was what I worked on, so a bit beyond school, but the same sort of idea, I guess, in that you know, students would be told to study refraction in some way, and then they would come up with ways of doing that through designing their own experiments. Yeah, I've heard at liberal arts colleges, actually, my friend who went to one, she said that they would teach, I don't know, like some courses, electromagnetism or whatever. It wouldn't be the professor teaching. It would be each student would take a different topic, learn about it, and then present it to the class, which is kind of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It can be really boring listening to the same professor all semester, especially mm. if they're not a good professor. And then you learn more when you teach. Mm-hmm. And if you can choose what you teach, you'll be more likely to learn it better because you're more interested in it. Mm. There's a lot of different levels to this. Well, there's lots of discourse and pros and cons of different learning styles, but like a lot of it boils down to uh, the resources available. So like in a typical American university, from what I gather, the class sizes are a bit smaller. You have more contact with your professors. Whereas, you know, we might have 300 people in a lecture. If you go to like a private ultra 
expensive school maybe I feel, or like community college is kind of like that like kirsten and i talk about big public universities it's not like that usually okay yeah universities you typically have like 200 or something in a class but as you go up higher classes you end up getting smaller groups okay same as us then fair enough yeah but only for us because of dropouts because like say so i think in u.s universities you get more of a choice of what you want to study like you pick certain things towards a major whereas for us Almost everything is prescribed from day one that if you do astronomy, you do all of these courses and you have like a semester where you can do anything you're interested in within reason. But beyond that, it's completely prescribed almost everything. Whereas I think from what I've heard, for example, the US system, a lot of places you can be a bit more this or this or one out of these three or you know there's a bit more flexibility for a lot of our courses everybody who hasn't dropped out takes it a lot of times there's breath courses where you have to take like english history some arts or something yeah to make people more well-rounded like that i guess that's the difference in philosophy that like the european universities are meant to churn out people who are qualified in a certain thing because that's the point of it because we're paying for you to be taught that and I guess the US liberal arts system, because my sister did something similar to that in the Netherlands, but it was like American style. And as you say, it's more about developing the person as opposed to just you need to be an expert on this after three years. Mm-hmm. After the first two years of doing a wide range of courses in your field, we do. Mm. But yeah, okay. Well, I guess this just shows that we really need to do more research into physics education <laughs> to find out the best ways to use analogies and teach and present physics so that it's accessible to more people yeah i think that physics education kind of at least in my experience has a bit of a bad rap among physicists like people working in the field that a lot of them aren't maybe keeping up to date with the literature or you know there's a bit of a disconnect between people that do physics education research and a lot of the people doing the physics education at universities who are the professors of physics that are actually do the teaching and that's a shame because clearly if people are spending a lot of time and energy developing best practices then the least we can do is consider using them. Yeah, I agree. Which leads to us potentially doing more physics education astrobytes. More motivation for that. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. This was a really interesting episode and covered very diverse disciplines. And I think we're about done there. So that concludes episode 82 of Astro Soundbites. So the universe thinks it can dance. <laughs> I guess it can dance from what we've learned. If you want to read the astrobytes we've talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. You can find our other episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. So thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. You know those websites I'm talking about that were like made in 2005 and are from professors that have been professors for like 30 years and they never update them. 